Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Natalie. How are you? Excited! The term's officially underway. This is the first week of our arguments, and I just feel like there's so much happening. <laughs> That's right. It was, a, it was a pretty busy week of oral arguments. Some kind of quick top-line takeaways I think we should talk about is that shortly after recording last week's episode, Justice Brett Kavanaugh received a positive COVID-19 test result from a, from a test that he had taken um, because of the investiture of Justice Amy Coney Barrett that was coming up the next day on Friday. So after his positive test result, the question was, well, what is he going to do when the court comes back in person for the first time since the pandemic started this week? And so we actually know what happened is that he participated in oral arguments from home. The court debuted um, dial-in conference call technology where he was actually able to be heard via telephone in the Supreme Court courtroom while all the other justices were present. Did you know, Natalie, that the Supreme Court was capable of such technological advances? I mean, they're going into such like brave new frontiers for them technologically, right? Because <laughs> they're also calls, streaming. Yeah. <laughs> they're also streaming. Like last, you know, look, last term, we a lot of us were relying on C-SPAN streams, right? When arguments were taking place, but now the court's actually streaming their own audio um, on their site. And, you know, it's just, I, I love how they're starting to embrace technology. <laughs> exactly. Okay, a couple other um, quick takeaways from the first week of oral arguments. So there was a little bit of um, a, a question mark surrounding Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, we talked about this on last week's show. So Justice Thomas, during the pandemic, he was participating in every oral argument because of this new seriatim format. At least that's what we thought because it was a orderly format um, that kind of give justices designated questioning time. And it's a, it's a long way to say we were kind of curious as to what he was going to do when he returned to the courtroom. Um, and the justices seemed to accommodate him with this special Clarence Thomas rule, right? The one where, you know, at the end of an attorney's argument, they kind of give any justices who have remaining questions the opportunity to ask them in order of seniority. And we saw that in practice. There was kind of one um, twist, though, to all this. And that is that during... Pretty much every case, I think it was every case this week, Clarence Thomas asked the first question, putting to bed any doubt over whether he would be a vocal participant in Supreme Court arguments going forward now that the court has returned. So what do you make of that, Natalie? I think Justice Thomas has come to appreciate having his voice heard in questioning. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting to see that he's so often the first question you know out of the gate and in these cases at least this week and, and you know that might change it's hard to judge a term by the first week right um you know i you know you almost wonder you know are, are the justices you know also kind of giving him some space to ask questions is there some sort of you know unknown to us agreement to like you know put some more order to the questioning line even in that kind of free-for-all you know first part um, you know, in deference to the style that he does like, you know, and does prefer um, for, for, for questioning matters. I think that's an interesting point, and, and I suspect that that is the case in what's, what's happening at the court. But uh, moving on to another uh, minor story this week. On Tuesday, the court was actually hearing oral arguments in a, in a pair of cases when there was some 
kind of activity going on outside of the courthouse. And there was a suspicious vehicle, a suspicious SUV, illegally parked outside of the court building on Tuesday as the justices were sitting inside um, participating in oral arguments. And police actually arrested the driver after he had made some threatening statements to the effect of, the time for talking is over. And uh, he was the suspect was actually known to um, the U.S. Capitol Police um, as someone who had previously visited the Capitol complex and made some threatening statements before. But the point is that he had refused to leave, and um, the police uh, had to arrest him, um, as they confirmed later in a press release. So the, there was no otherwise disruption to the court's activities, but just another sign of the times that we're in. The court is no stranger to these occasional threats. There was a bomb threat that was called in on Inauguration Day, and obviously there was a lot of security fencing that only came down recently around the Supreme Court, um, but just wanted to kind of update listeners about that. So I think it's probably time to get to our main segment today. There were um, oral arguments this week. We're going to be focusing on one case in particular. It's a case called United States versus Zebeda. It's a fascinating state secrets case over whether the CIA and the U.S. government can prevent uh, testimony about um, their CIA black sites in this country of Poland. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Wednesday to that effect. And to talk about and break down the case, we have on a special guest, Spencer Ackerman. He's the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, and the reporter publisher of the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack and contributing editor of The Daily Beast. He's been tracking the case of Abu Zubaydah closely, and we're excited to have him. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Spencer. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So let's, before we dive into the particulars of the Supreme Court case that was argued yesterday, I want to talk to you because you've written a pretty interesting piece in the Daily Beast about this uh, detainee, Abu Zubaydah. So can, before we dive in, can you just give us some background? Who is Abu Zubaydah? Abu Zubaydah was the test case for the CIA's torture program. The CIA tortured him so extensively, according to the Senate torture report, that after one waterboarding session, um, bubbles were coming out of his mouth due to his catatonia, and that at a certain point, a CIA interrogator simply had to snap his fingers and Abu Zubaydah would go into a confinement box. That's how seriously the CIA tortured this man. Um, his name, in fact, is not Abu Zubaydah. His name is Zain al-Abidin Muhammad Hussein. The CIA did all this to him while claiming that he was the number three official in al-Qaeda. Very quietly over the years, the CIA has, according to the Senate torture report, withdrawn that claim during um, the you know few moments at his subsequent post-2006 detention at Guantanamo, where we have heard about Abu Zubaydah's history from himself. Uh, he has described himself as the Pakistan-based coordinator of guest houses before 9-11 um, that got uh, jihadist trainees in and out of um, a camp in Afghanistan called Kaldin where, as he put it, they would train in defensive jihad, which meant striking military targets 
um, as he put it, Russia against Chechnya, Israel against Palestine. Um, he said that he was not a trained fighter. And although the government in its very brief in this case before the Supreme Court describes Abu Zubaydah as an ally of Osama bin Laden, um, Abu Zubaydah has said that uh, bin Laden, this is a quote from him, bin Laden wanted al-Qaeda to have control of the Kaldan camp, but we refused since we had different ideas. Um, the government has kept Abu Zubaydah in indefinite detention without charge even after he left the black sites in 2006. He remains at Guantanamo Bay today, unable to not only um, free himself, but to have basic justice uh, for the ordeal that the United States subjected him to. And that is what brought Abu Zubaydah before, you know, figuratively speaking, um, the Supreme Court, since one of the CIA doesn't acknowledge this. Um, Abu Zubaydah's torture partners was Poland, which hosted Abu Zubaydah's torture on a military base whose name, unfortunately, I cannot pronounce in uh, the better part of 2003. Um, there was a European Court of Human Rights investigation into European government's participation in post 9-11 CIA torture. Um, while that inquiry did not get to formally question American officials who can answer this question definitively. They said that the preponderance of evidence demonstrates that Poland was a CIA partner um, in its torture program. And because of this, a Polish investigation was reopened, a criminal investigation in 2015 um, that allows for Abu Zubaydah to seek some kind of redress for what happened to him at the Poland-based uh, CIA black site. And in order to establish the what happened to him within the time frame that he's in Poland, Abu Zubaydah's lawyers sought to um, compel testimony from the CIA contractors who devised the torture program, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. And over the course of the last, I guess, four years, um, the Justice Department under first the Trump administration and now the Biden administration have sought to prevent Abu Zubaydah from deposing um, Mitchell and Jessen on the theory that the CIA has declared that uh, this is all a state secret, the participation of any foreign partner in the torture program. And that is the question that on Wednesday uh, the court met to adjudicate. Right. I think it's interesting to kind of delineate um, what the, the the U.S. government has acknowledged about Zubeda's um, capture and torture um, at the hands of their CIA captors and what it still refuses to let be known. And you just referred to basically the thrust of this case, and that is testimony from these two CIA contractors about um, his treatment in a uh, CIA black site in a country that's been reported to be Poland. So I guess I would ask you, um, why do Zubeda's attorneys say that they should be able to subpoena these contractors and that this information is essentially already public? So what they said, and you can read this both in their briefs and you can hear this um, uh, from their responses to the justices, 
is that they know that, you know, everyone knows at this point that Abu Zubaydah was tortured. Amy Coney Barrett referred to that specifically. She referred outright, she used the the T word torture um, to Abu Zubaydah, and they know roughly when this happened. What we, as as Abu Zubaydah's attorney put it, what we still don't have in the public record is the what of it. What specifically during this time period um, did the CIA inflict on Abu Zubaydah? Mitchell and Jessen are people who definitively know the answer to that question, as they were intimately involved in the construction and maintenance of this program. And that is what um, Abu Zubaydah's attorneys say is the heart of the issue that they are being prevented by the U.S. government, again, first under Trump, now under Biden, um, from pursuing. Why is the government fighting so hard to keep this a continued secret? What, what arguments does the U.S. make that they cannot allow these contractors to give testimony? And these contractors have given testimony in other cases, just not on, you know, the geographic areas of where, you know, the torture took place. So what the government is arguing is that allowing Abu Zubaydah to compel testimony um, from this case uh, is extremely inconvenient for the CIA's operations, that uh, there is um, testimony uh, basically um, from the former director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, who in every other context I think intelligent people can recognize is a thoroughly deceitful individual with no credibility. Um, What Pompeo is arguing in this case is that unless the CIA keeps its torture partners um, out of public view forever, then none of them will ever cooperate with the CIA, not only currently, but in the future. The more respectable, gussied up way that the Justice Department refers to this is that um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which allowed for uh, the testimony of Mitchell and Chesson to be kind of remanded to go you know, forward, um, erred by not, as um, the Justice Department's Brian Fletcher put it before the court, insufficiently deferring to Pompeo when Pompeo talks about the scope of state secrets as a doctrine to protect the CIA. What everyone is sort of talking around here from the Justice Department, the CIA, and the Supreme Court perspective is that this is a case about um, retaining CIA impunity. That's the heart of the issue here. That is what Abu Zubaydah um, is challenging. So the court obviously heard oral arguments yesterday. What can you tell us about the thrust of the justices' questions? What were they most concerned about? What was interesting was how skeptically they approached the Justice Department um, in trying to gauge how sweeping the assertion of the state secrets privilege is. There was a point at which Justice Kagan, as she's remarking about how there has been so much Um, acknowledged in the Senate 2014 torture report, for instance, in the European Court of Human Rights' inquiry about what Abu Zubaydah has experienced, including James Mitchell's own memoir, that she referred to uh, the extent of the, the privilege asserted by the Justice Department as a little bit farcical. 
And that was the thrust of a lot of the sort of questions the justices put to the Justice Department, which is that the veneer of patriotic emergency that successive administrations have invoked after 9-11 to convince judges, not just justices of the Supreme Court, that they're functionally powerless over national security prerogatives um, was something that the justices on Wednesday kind of punctured, that they were not particularly patient with the way in which the Justice Department outlined that because the CIA director says that it would not be helpful to disclose the torture that Zain al-Abidin Mohammed Hussein experienced by the CIA, that that should be the end of the case. And in fairness to the Justice Department, over the past 20 years since 9-11, arguments like that have typically won. And they've they've been so successful um, that a subplot of what the justices, particularly Justice Breyer, was uh, talking about during oral argument indicated that the justices seem not to understand how the post 9-11 state of exception actually works in practice, even after, in Breyer's case, he has been part of several rulings that have established it. Why doesn't Mr. Zubay, he was there. Why doesn't he say, this is what happened? And, and they won't deny it. I mean, I don't think if he's telling the truth. You're talking about Mitchell or Jesson. No, I'm not. I'm saying the person who was there was, yeah. was, I don't know if he's your client. Isn't he your client? His name is on this well, thing. Abu Zubaydah yes. Zubayda cannot testify. Why not? He, he's, because he is being held incommunicado. He has been held in Guantanamo. Why? Why? Just out of, I mean, I'm not sure this is relevant, but I mean, in Hamdi, we said you could hold people in Guantanamo. Uh, the words were active combat operations against Taliban fighters apparently are going on in Afghanistan. Well, they're not anymore. Mr. So, so what's the, what, why is he there? Uh, that's a question to put to the government. We don't know the answer. I mean, have you that. filed a, a habeas or something, get him out? There's been a habeas proceeding pending in D.C. for the last 14 years. There's well, how, been, don't there's they been decide no action. They don't decide it? I'm sorry? I mean, you just let it sit there. All right. No, we, I guess this well, is not uh, relevant, I, I, but I'm I, just curious Personally, about I'm it. not handling that proceeding. But, no, we're, we're, my understanding is that we've, we've done everything we could to, to move it forward. But it simply has not moved forward. So, you know, the government's coming into this and they're saying this is still a national security issue, no matter how much may or may not be known um, due to public news reports. You know, we made this promise, right? And we made this promise not to disclose that, you know, these countries worked with us on these operations and we have to keep that promise. It's a national security issue to keep that promise, you know. And and, and the justices from both sides really seem to um, push back on Zubeda's attorneys on this point. I mean, here's Justice Roberts um, questioning Zubeda's attorney on, on this matter. I guess I'm having trouble following exactly what it is you're looking for. And I don't think you're grappling with uh, the point that Justice Barrett just raised, which is you, everybody may know about this, you know, as, as you put it, it's no secret at all. But you don't have the United States government acknowledging that. And the United States government says this is critically important because our um, uh, friends, allies, intelligence sources around the world have to believe that we keep our word. And our word was this is, this is secret. And so they may be, you know, the CIA director may be the last person in the world 
to, to uh, have said this is where the site is. But that's what's important, what, what the United States has revealed, not what you find. You say you're not going to ask anything about, about Poland. Um, uh, well, then, why do you need the uh, director of the CIA in the United States government to agree with what you say you've got enough proof on uh, that there was this site in Poland? So as Justice Roberts mentioned in that clip, you know, the, the attorneys for Zubeda were saying that, OK, the Ninth Circuit agreed with you on that, too. We're, we're, we're putting that off the table. We're not going to ask the contractor specifically if this took place in Poland. We're going to ask if it took place during the set dates that we're questioning about. Right. So we're not going to ask you to, you know, divulge the location on your own. Um, but but I guess, you know, it's kind of a roundabout way in which Zubeda's attorneys are going to be trying to, you know, make the case for and make a link that, you know, if these actions took place during these dates and we have other other evidence that suggests it was in Poland, this is how we make the link and make our case um, in the European Court of Human Rights. What are, what are the broader stakes of this case? If, if, if you know, the government can doesn't have to, you know, officially confirm in their own way, you know, officially confirm in in their own statement that it was Poland, you know, and there are so many details of the CIA's torture program already public. Why is this information so important? And and what what kind of a win would this be for Zubeda? It would be a tremendous win for Abu Zubeda because it would be the first time that he would be allowed to pursue justice for what has happened to him. What's crucial here is that there has been, I think there, it, it's been, it has been kind of um, amazing and galling to hear both the CIA and the Justice Department talk about how much information has been disclosed about Abu Zubaydah's torture when they have fought disclosure at every step of that to include spying on the Senate's torture investigation um, while uh, it was on while it was ongoing um, and referring um, entirely frivolously the lead investigator for the Senate on the torture program to the Justice Department for prosecution for stealing evidence, uh, for, um, for, for supposedly hacking um, into the CIA, which was just always frivolous and absurd. That underscores the extent to which uh, the CIA successive administrations have gone to try and make sure that none of what it has done to um, at least 119 people Surely more than that inside the black sites, inside um, the inside Guantanamo, inside um, all of the different battlefield uh, prisons set up in Iraq and Afghanistan. All of that is what the the Biden administration, the CIA wants to keep out of view. Um, The specifics of such things like what happened to Abu Zubaydah during this particular time period is not actually known. Uh, Again, we know the contours of what the CIA did to Abu Zubaydah, not because of what the Justice Department chose, or the CIA, let alone, chose to disclose, but what they were compelled to disclose. And it hasn't remotely scratched the surface in what 
is shaping up as a criminal proceeding. So this is information that's directly relevant to the only opportunity Abu Zubaydah has ever had, really any Guantanamo detainee, um, really any black site detainee, to actually getting justice for what was done to him. It's, it's directly material. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show today, Spencer, and, and breaking everything down. Uh, I just want to ask quickly if you could kind of give us a quick uh, pitch summary of your, of your book, Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump before we let you go here. Sure. So the book is about how the response to 9-11 is a doorway into all of this nativist, uh, racist, violent American history that under cover of patriotic national emergency um, is allowed to rush in and take power. And the book is about not only how um, this you know unfolded overseas, but how all of this from the start after 9-11 in uh, ways great and small, take sledgehammers to the foundations of institutions that are supposed to safeguard American freedom and American democracy, and how over the course of these wars um, becoming agonizing disasters, uh, the political response that's generated to both the thing itself and the disasters uh, produced by it fuels uh, a desire for um, vengeance that is nativist in character and extremely uh, politically potent and volatile. Um, and ultimately, that takes the form of the MAGA movement and Donald Trump and eventually gets us to January 6th. Fascinating. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, uh, Spencer. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. There's so much going on in that case, United States versus Zubeda. And as you talked about, Natalie, the justices did seem particularly skeptical of Zubeda's attorney's arguments um, during the hearing. And I think kind of just one little example of where they stand kind of came towards the end of the case. So Zubeda's attorney had obviously conceded that they're not looking to have these CIA contractors answer questions specifically about um, the, the black site in Poland just during these date ranges. And you saw some of the justices try to find um, what they called an off-ramp to the case. Justice Neil Gorsuch in particular was asking them, okay, what if we just didn't deal with these contractors at all? Because if what you're actually seeking is testimony about what happened during these dates, who better to talk about that than Zubeda himself? And uh, that kind of goes to Breyer's question that we've obviously talked about earlier in the episode, and there was, a, there was a clip there from him, and Gorsuch circles back on the point to say, you know, he's questioning an attorney for the government, acting Solicitor General Brian Fletcher, and he says, will you agree to make Zubeda available for testimony in this Polish proceeding? If that could be some way to obviate the need for all of what's going on, this whole entire Supreme Court case, if you just agree to kind of set aside all the protective orders, all the rules and regulations governing the status of Guantanamo Bay prisoners, and essentially just consent to allow his testimony about his experience at the hands of the CIA during this time when he was in a black site, reportedly, in Poland. And so it's just, there's so much going on in this case, and we don't know exactly how the court is going to resolve it, whether it's going to be a slam dunk for the government um, or some kind of middle ground, potentially, as alluded to at the end of the oral arguments by Gorsuch, which was also echoed by Breyer and Sotomayor. So something interesting to watch.
Definitely. I mean, the government attorney actually said he will get back to the court and the justices on that question of whether Zubeda would be allowed to t- testify. Um, obviously, though, he 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 couched it, uh, you know, immediately with, you know, the state's secret privileges and reviews would still apply. Um, so it's something to, to look at uh, for sure. And this is not the only state secret case that the court is gearing up to hear this term. In a few weeks in November, there's going to be another one involving the FBI and a surveillance program that uh, took place uh, at a mosque in California right after 9-11. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's a federal class action alleging First Amendment violations and, and the like. But, you know, again, at the center of this is a state secret privilege. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if the court puts up new parameters and new guidelines with either of these cases when it comes to when the when when the government is allowed to, you know, say like, no, this is still a state secret. We can't we can't give this information. So much to talk about. Um, <laughs> we'll be we'll be uh, looking out for an opinion in this case for exactly that. Um, I think that about does it. We'll be back next week. There's a uh, big oral argument scheduled for next Wednesday in the case United States versus Sarnayev, which involves another super high profile matter of national security, and that was the 2013 Boston bombing attack. The government is appealing to reinstate the death penalty for the younger of the two. Boston Bombers, and we'll have the breakdown of oral arguments in that case. But for now, Natalie, it was a pleasure talking to you this week. Likewise, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Special guest this week, Spencer Ackerman. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.